The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. All right, so good morning. Today we're going to read from uh, Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. So if I can get you to please stand. And again, it's Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Sacrifice is pleasing to God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with all you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. morning again. Let's pray. Our God, um, we're, we're so thankful this morning that you know us. You know all we've been through. You know what's hard in our lives. Um, and we know you're at work in our lives. When we belong to you, you are at work and you promise to finish that good work and we can trust you even when we're in the middle of hard things god i i know that um for many of us our hearts are dry this morning um we we have the demeanor of those who are kind of going through the motions more than those who are um eagerly attentive to to um, the things in front of us um and so i pray that you would just Open our eyes to the wonders that are laid out before us. Don't let us uh, pass these next minutes without seeing it clearly. We pray that you would give us the joy of our salvation. Remind us of all the reasons we have for hope. Remind us that, um, that you are good and that your promises are sure. Pray that you would revive our hearts. Make us small. Make yourself very big in the estimations of our hearts and minds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know, you're, you've had a good series in a book when a, a page in your Bible is loose. I don't know if anyone else is having that problem. Um, but I'm really thankful that we've made it so far in this meaty book of Hebrews. We've made it all the way to chapter 13. And you're probably going to notice a definite shift in the, the content as we go from chapter 12 to chapter 13. I mean, our text for this morning is just five commands. So um, it's almost all application from here on out in Hebrews. And because of that, we're going to have to work hard to remember 
what we've already seen in Hebrews. We don't want to forget those first 12 chapters. So, for example, do you remember how we said that Jesus is better than angels or any spirits? We also said Jesus is better than Moses or any mere prophet or ancient spokesperson for God. We noted that Jesus is better than any priest or any figure who could perform an offering or ritual to bring us close to the divine. Jesus completes what those figures only foreshadowed. We noted that Jesus himself is a better king even than the mysterious Melchizedek. Jesus is the true king of righteousness. We saw that Jesus is better than any holy place. There's no place on earth where you can go to get closer to God than you already are if you're found in Jesus by faith. And Jesus is the better sacrifice. If you don't trust in him, but you're instead trying to win God's favor through your own sacrifices, then that's actually a rejection of God's plan. And so because of all these ways in which Jesus is superior, if we don't shrink back, but we instead press in, we draw near for grace, then we can have the full assurance of faith. We can know for sure that we are part of an unshakable kingdom. And in chapter 11, we thought about the legacy of those who went before us in the faith, how they journeyed through this world as strangers and exiles because they desired a better country, a heavenly one, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared for them a city. And because Jesus is in every way our final solution, we dare not refuse him as he speaks to us. The cost of unbelief is horrific, and the reward for resting in him is infinitely worth it. And so we have to keep moving forward. We have to keep enduring in him, trusting in him. Even though all the pressures around us make us want to quit, just draw back, settle for an easier life with a more immediate reward, momentary rewards, but Jesus is better. And I review all that because without remembering those things in those first 12 chapters, we won't rightly understand why he's saying to do these things that we're reading about in chapter 13. One way to think about today's verses is that we were commanded at the very end of chapter 12 to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and so to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So if we really have that gratitude and that reverence and awe, then we should be asking, well, what does it mean by offering to God acceptable worship? We did talk about how it doesn't just mean singing worship songs. It doesn't just mean attending a worship service. It means really offering your whole life as acceptable worship. I want to do that. I want to grow in that. And so as I look from chapter 12 to chapter 13, I think any reader's natural prayer is help me to see the acceptable worship that you have for me to do that's already all around me. How do I live that sort of life? Is that a desire of yours this morning? to live a life that's so full of gratitude and awe of God that every aspect of your life is pleasing worship to him? What would need to change in your life in order for that to be the case? Where do we usually grow weary and miss the mark? Where exactly will the battle for endurance take us as the pressures mount to to pull us back, to cause us to drift away from Christ? 
where will the battle be? That's exactly where chapter 13 takes us, to unpack where is the battle for belief? Where is the battle for enduring in Christ? And these, these are specific examples of what it looks like to live a life of acceptable worship. They're not the only examples that could be given, but they're the ones that the author of Hebrews chooses because they were particularly relevant to the original audience. And I think as we go along, you'll find that they're definitely not irrelevant to us as well. So verse 1 gets us started with this broad command. It says, let brotherly love continue. And when the author thinks about, okay, a lifestyle of acceptable worship to God, then of course the word love jumps out. That, that makes sense. And it makes sense that we have come to the assembly of the firstborn. Remember that in the last chapter? And we talked about how the church is a family. And if we're being treated as sons and daughters, then of course we're bound to God through Christ, but we're also bound to each other. And just like in any family, you don't always like your siblings. But you do have to love them, sincerely. And it's the same in the family of God. And it says... Let brotherly love continue because there is this baseline love that we have as Christians. You can't even help it. It's just there. Um, If a group of people are rescued together from certain death, then they have this common bond for the rest of their lives. I was reading recently about uh, the survivors of the Titanic, how they got together for a reunion in the 1980s. And, uh, you know, they lived completely separate lives since 1912. But then as they got together, they were able to relate to each other in, in such a familial way. And, and that's because a common identity was forged when they were saved. And our common identity was forged when we were saved. So that love for each other, that's just a part of who you are as one who's been rescued by Christ. So don't let that mutual love grow dull. Instead, even cultivate it. Because that love that comes by the Spirit of God, it's, it's, uh, we need to be all the more intentional about exhibiting it. Now, love isn't just a warm sentiment, right? Love does stuff. Love is active. So within a subset of, um, of brotherly love, we need to look at hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In the ancient world, there, were, um, there weren't that many inns along the way, and the roads were very dangerous. And so as Christians traveled from town to town, um, members of the church in that area would just take you in. That's the way it worked. Now I want to ask, how would you react if you got a phone call today? It was uh, from a friend of a friend of a friend. They said, hey, I'm a member of an Acts 29 church in Kentucky or, or Iowa. And uh, tomorrow morning, I've got an early flight out of O'Hare to go visit a sick relative. So is it cool if uh, my friend drops me by your house and I'll spend the night and then in the morning you can drive me to the airport? How would you respond? (laughs) And even if you said yes, would you have a happy heart in doing that? And, 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 like, let's draw it back even another level. How many people have been in your home? Our culture is growing more and more isolated all the time. And it's really hard to love people well if you've only made room for the ones that you most prefer. So what might happen if you live dangerously, if you tried to open your home more frequently 
to a broader variety of people for a broader variety of reasons. The text says that some people have even entertained angels without knowing it. That's a sobering thought. Like, you you never know why someone has come across your path. What will be their experience of you? Will it be one of generous welcome or cold indifference? And even if you're pretty confident that the people in your house aren't angels, some guests make it clear, um, they are still people with eternal souls. And, and so if they're brothers and sisters, you're going to see them one day glorified, conformed to the image of Christ, and you're going to be amazed at this son or daughter of glory who has emerged from this broken, maybe annoying person that you once inconvenienced yourself to have in your home. And it's going to be beautiful and gratifying forever that you played some small role in their story. But the thing is, if we're going to love in this way of hospitality, we're going to have to find our security in God. Wednesday through Friday this week, I was at a workshop for pastors in Wisconsin. And when the sessions, the sessions ended early on Wednesday because they were scared of the ice storm. They wanted to get people where they were going. Um, and so um, my, I was with two other traveling companions. The Verbo that we were going to stay at, it wasn't ready yet. We couldn't check in for another two hours. Now, um, the pastor of the host church was an old friend of mine from U of I. And he said, hey, guys, why don't you just come over to my house and hang out till you can get into your Verbo? And we were like, well, are you, are you sure your wife is cool with that? And he's like, yeah, that's it's totally fine as long as you understand that the kids have been home all day because school was canceled. So we drove six minutes to his house, and the inside looked exactly as my house would if um, people, if I didn't know people would be coming over. Um, and his wife, who didn't know us at all, she was just all sincere smiles. And she cleared away, you know, the half-finished art projects and the open books and random pieces of clothing. And then we stepped over plastic toys on the floor and made a place on the couches. And we sat down and we had a great conversation. We learned about each other's stories. We talked about life and God and lessons learned and hopes for the future. And some things we were saying had to be repeated because, you know, the boys, the two boys would come running through, one of them, like, chasing the other with boogers on his fingers and and then uh or the little girl would keep pressing the button on her uh, frozen castle to you know and let it go would blare out again but my point is that when we left we felt really cared for not in spite of the mess but precisely because of the mess because there were no insecure apologies or expressions of embarrassment as we walked in just a sentiment of Here's our life. You're welcome to share in it for a couple of hours. And precisely because this husband and wife were so secure in who they were before God, and they had nothing to prove before people, so they were able to bless others exactly when it mattered most to us. And I think that this is a really important concept. Um, Hospitality, it's not only an incredibly tangible way to exercise love toward our brothers and sisters, but showing hospitality even to strangers is a great way to see our circle of brothers and sisters expand. There's a book that I would recommend to everyone called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's by Rosaria Butterfield, and she was a tenured professor of feminist and queer theory at Syracuse University, 
And after she wrote a scathing opinion piece against Christianity, a pastor called her up and invited her over. And the following multiple dinner conversations with him and his wife led Rosaria into more and more sections of the Bible. And the, the confounding love shown by this family to a hostile stranger, that was a huge piece of her coming to Christ. And in this book, she argues for a more robust understanding and expression of, of hospitality throughout the church. So again, let's return to that question, how many people have actually been in your home? Wouldn't it be great if we just had that comfort where, you know, the sitcoms when we were kids, like the neighbors would just pop in. They would just like, it was like the, their second home, you know. Wouldn't it be cool if we could build that sort of culture with our own hospitality? So pray for those sorts of relationships. Pray for courage to take bold steps in radical, countercultural, God-trusting hospitality. Another practical way to exhibit brotherly love is to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. And he's talking specifically about Christians. He's talking about helping brothers and sisters who've been beat down. And that's not to say that we shouldn't like visit prisoners generally, okay? There are some great ministries out there. They're doing really good work to bring the good news of Christ to some of the people who have hit rock bottom and they have incredibly soft hearts toward the good news. So if you have capacity and opportunity, definitely do get involved with a, a prison ministry. But that's just not what these verses happen to be focused on. Remember, the context here in Hebrews is the persecuted church. So uh, back in Hebrews 10, we read that some of those in this audience had endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. They had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, knowing that they had a better possession and an abiding one. So this is referring to Christians who had been put in prison for their faith. Back then, prisons were not humane places, okay? If your friends and family didn't bring you uh, provisions, then you could easily get sick. You could get malnourished and die. But then if they did come and help you, well, then, then those people who brought you help would be associated with you. And then that might subject them to mistreatment as well. So you can see why this church needed the exhortation to remember those who are in prison. Now, one clear application of this is that we need to do all we can for persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. This is why we have those copies of the Voice of the Martyrs magazines downstairs so that you can grow familiar with those contexts. I also encourage you to sign up for the secret church event that we're hosting on April 21st so you can learn more about the persecuted church. We do have an obligation to be praying, sometimes even to be helping in more practical ways those who have been jailed for the faith all around the world. But in our own context, how do we live this out? We don't necessarily have this problem of Christians being thrown in jail. How do we obey this command? And I think that one clue is, is just what comes next. It says, remember those who are mistreated. So we can ask, how are brothers and sisters in Christ mistreated today in our American context? You know, you've probably come across situations where some people, after coming to Christ, 
they are rejected or they're put in compromising situations by their families. So are we prepared to open up our spare rooms, to, to welcome them into our homes while they get their feet under them? Or in years to come, it's likely that more Christians are going to face lawsuits, lose jobs, have their businesses compromised because of the ways that they try to make decisions in line with their conscience and the word of God. Will we pool together to support them when those things happen? Or when our brothers and sisters are slandered, when they publicly undergo character assassinations, even if maybe they could have been wiser in how they presented themselves, will we still draw near and associate with them all the more? Because the connection of brotherly love means that we have each other's back. Not always because our brothers or sisters deserve it, but because our Lord does. And whatever you do for the least of these, his mistreated brothers and sisters, you do it to him. So our motivation for this, this difficult hospitality and visitation and care, our, our motivation is going to grow as we grow in self-awareness because we are weak. We are needy. And the more you know that, then the more you own your need for mercy and, and your need to draw near to the throne of grace, the more you're going to grow in empathy for others who are also in the body. And you're going to hurt when they are hurting. When they're enduring something you wouldn't want to endure, you're going to reach out in love. And we're told here, so, so the verbs, do not neglect these kinds of love. Remember these kinds of love. These commands suggest, like, why aren't these things happening? It's not because we don't want to do them. It's not because we don't want them to happen. It's because we're not remembering. We're just, you know, we too easily forget to love because our lives are so wrapped up in ourselves. We're so busy. We're so self-focused that we, a lot of times, don't even see the needs that are out there. And so we can pray for God to slow us down and lift our eyes to see the needs. Brotherly love, such as hospitality, caring for the mistreated, that's one way to offer acceptable worship. Another important way that we worship God with our lives is to let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. One very meaningful gauge of the health of a church is the health of its marriages. And one very meaningful gauge of the health of those marriages is the health of the marriage bed. And that may be something that we just want to shy away from. I don't want to talk about that, but sorry, we can't really afford to shy away from it. Uh, the first century hearers of the, the book of Hebrews, they were in a situation just like ours. They felt awash in a society that's just full of twisted sexuality and thoughtless indulgence. And so they needed this instruction, and we need this instruction. So... How do we know if the marriage bed is undefiled? First, it's a place where husband and wife come together, both with open hearts and eager care. If you remember, 1 Corinthians 7 instructed that the husband should give to the wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to the husband. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, what that passage isn't promoting is any type of coercion by either spouse, but rather it's promoting a, uh, it's promoting a relationship where the communication is just so good and the care is so mutual that this is just how things play out. 
Christians are meant to have more intimacy and better intimacy than those who aren't in Christian marriages. That's how God designed it to be. Now, if your marriage bed isn't functioning like that, then you're going to need to talk about it, maybe get some help. And my guess is that the place to start isn't with the topic of intimacy itself, but probably with some other dynamics in your relationship that are impacting that area. And I just want to say that if you prolong that conversation too long, then you are opening yourself up to other temptations that dishonor marriage, like bitterness and divorce for unbiblical reasons. Now, other than depriving or coercing one another, obviously the marriage bed could also be defiled by adultery. This could be a secret physical affair or it could be a fairly open emotional affair. So is there someone of the opposite sex whose pull on your emotions is in competition with your spouse? A friend, a colleague, an acquaintance that you're a little too excited to see every week. You've already committed adultery in your heart. Also, if you look at pornography, and frankly, regardless of whether the people actually have some clothing on or not, if you're lingering over photos or videos of people to whom you're attracted who are not your spouse, then Jesus said this is the same as adultery. Now, if you've neglected your spouse or you've hurt your spouse or you've preferred another to your spouse or you've been unfaithful to your spouse, even if through pornography or what might seem like a fairly innocent friendship that your heart actually knows is something more, if that's you, then the Spirit of God, through this passage today, commands you to stop. Don't make excuses. Make confession. Tell your spouse. Tell another Christian brother or sister. Not so that you can be condemned, but so that you can be set free. And if you're having a secret relationship with someone, not your spouse, you need to end that today. Your God demands this of you, and he will supply all the strength you need to do the right thing. Yes, it will hurt badly. And it will hurt other people too. But you've already chosen to do that. You've just been delaying the consequences. So no more. Another way in which marriage is not held in honor is by pursuing sexual intimacy of any kind outside of it. Premarital sexual contact isn't just like, kids will be kids. No. It does distort the picture of Christ and his church that marriage is meant to portray to the world. And it does leave memories and scars affecting the ability to give as fully or freely in marriage. Of course, there's forgiveness and there's cleansing for that as we repent. But we're not meant to go down that road in the first place. A big way in which even young people who consider themselves Christians may compromise is by moving in together before marriage. It's culturally accepted. It's even culturally expected. A lot of times it makes sense logistically, financially, but this is not God's good design. And maybe some in this room have kind of played at marriage before marriage. If so, I'd encourage you to talk about that openly with each other and, uh, and, and pray about the ways that that may have hurt your marriage, may still be hurting your marriage. And if you feel any lingering guilt or shame, confess, confess that sin to other believers, maybe your life group. Have them pray that you would have a fuller experience of God's forgiveness. 
as we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And just a general rule, if there's anything in your past that you are afraid people might discover, it's always best to shine light on it yourself. Then we can commit it to Christ together, and then we can move on in freedom and joy. Throughout the Bible, sexual sin is a big deal. If you remember, 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Like, run from it. Escape while you can. It says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's a sense in which the, the fallout stays with you. God is judging. God will judge those who ignore his designs for human sexuality. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, you might be thinking, like, oh, how backward all these sexual ethics are. And I get it. Like, we, we in this room are not sitting in judgment, expecting you to embrace these standards. These are expectations for those who claim to belong to Christ. Because, frankly, if there weren't a creator, then why wouldn't we just do what feels good? Why wouldn't we just do what seems to come so naturally? And that's where most of the world has landed. But if there is a creator, the thing is, he calls the shots. Because he has a design. And we in this room have seen enough of that God to know that his designs are very, very good. So Christians, can we be content with the goodness of sexuality as he's created it to be expressed and honored? Contentment is, is actually key to obeying any of these commandments. When we think about brotherly love through hospitality or visitation, like you're simply, you're, you're not going to give of your resources if you're not content because you're going to feel like, well, I need more in order to be okay, so I'm, I'm not going to give anything. Or um, without contentment, you won't avoid sexual immorality. If you're not content with the situation God has given you presently, you're going to be scrambling for anything to make you feel better. So there's a radical trust in God that's reflected through simple contentment. And maybe that's why the next command tells us to keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, I doubt that anyone thinks of themselves as loving money. That's not, not usually a problem we diagnose for ourselves. Here's the thing, though. Did you know that you don't have to be wealthy to love money? You can love the money you don't have. The question is, how much does changing your financial situation occupy your thoughts? Are you always thinking like, oh, if I could just get that raise, if I could just pay off my car loan, if I could just afford this or that, then, well, then life would, would feel manageable. Or for some people, their love of money has kind of entered the fantasy realm and they're like, if, if I could only win the lottery. Do you know that if you won the lottery, your life would actually be miserable? I guarantee it. Now, some of us do have financial resources, and, and while we wouldn't think that we love them, per se, we are very preoccupied with them. Here's a tip. Did you know that your portfolio doesn't actually grow every time you look at it? There's no relationship between those things. Um, 
But isn't it natural to keep an eye on one's situation? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I suggest that you become preoccupied with a different portfolio. Jesus said, store up treasure where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. So do you think much about your legacy in the ledger of heaven? Because even the poorest person here on earth can amass riches beyond compare as we live for the kingdom of Christ and not the kingdom of self. We can be content with what we have because we trust in God's provision. We also trust that he cares for us, that he's working all things together for the good of each of those who belong to him. And that's, and that's something that he's present to remind us of because we forget. We forget his sufficiency. So he is present with us to remind us. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a quote from Joshua chapter one where God is talking to Joshua. He's trying to give Joshua courage before Joshua goes out to, to fight all these, these um, foreign powers. And so you can be sure that as you battle for contentment in your life, our God wants his presence to give you courage also. And we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's a quote from Psalm 118. And that's a chapter that just meditates in many different ways on the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. His love is steadfast. His promises to you are sure, so you don't have to be afraid. So if he's your helper... What can man do to you? Let's explore that. Well, man could take away my possessions. Man could take away my health, uh, my family, even my life. Okay, but man can't take away your eternal name or riches or your forever family or your eternal life. As we've phrased it before, they can kill you, but they can't harm you. They can kill you, but they can't harm you. So even though this comment about the Lord not leaving us and, and being our helper, it's directly attached to this command about being content with the money we have. Still, this, this comment about his presence is really, I think, a banner over this whole passage. All these hard things that we're being asked to do that are countercultural, his presence is entirely relevant. We'll, like, I think we will love each other when we rightly remember that the Lord will never leave us. That's when that love emerges. We remember that the Lord will never leave us and we remember that people can't really hurt us. When you remember that the Lord will never leave you and that people can't really hurt you, then you are free to love like this passage says. Remembering that he's with us, he is our helper, he will never forsake us, that gives us the courage to say no to all the temporary fixes that dishonor God and hurt ourselves and hurt others. So he reminds us in many places across scripture that he is with us. He likes to do this. My favorite is Second Chronicles 16.9. It says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the, er the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Strong support. And just before his ascension, Jesus promised us, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But how, how is he with us? Okay, he said that right before he went up to heaven. So he's not with us, right? He ascended into heaven. 
Well, in John 16, he said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He will guide you into all the truth. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And in Acts, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus. So our Lord, he's in heaven. He has all authority. He sees us. He provides for us. He defends us. He leads us. And the Spirit is his means of being with each believer, guiding us through these things, through money trouble, preserving us through sexual temptation, strengthening our marriage, giving courage to those who are mistreated, also supplying the one who is trying to help the one who's mistreated. The Spirit gives us the desire for and the joy in hospitality, even when the world would say it's more trouble than it's worth. The Spirit is like a gardener, and he's cultivating the soil of our lives. He's, he's growing this whole life acceptable worship that lives every day for the unshakable kingdom, not for the sandcastles of this world, not for the delusion of a self-ruled kingdom. The pressures to drift from Jesus are real. The pressures to just wall up the fort, worry about ourselves, survive. Those pressures are real. But in his better covenant, our Lord Jesus put, he says, the new covenant puts these laws on our hearts and the spirit writes them on our minds. So what that means is that if you're a Christian here today, you already know these commands, right? They feel right to you. They resonate with you as, yeah, this is the person he made me to be. So may the reality of his presence already approving you and sustaining you, ready to confirm you. May that presence give you the courage to do the hard things that let Christian love continue to flourish as you endure to the very end. Our God, we know we need your help in these things. Holy Spirit, do this work in us. Make us people of brotherly love. Make us people of sexual purity. Make us people who don't fear people who know that you are always with us and who act accordingly. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.